Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that thou hast called us to be thy people, that thou hast surrounded us with thy mercies, and hast made us kings, priests, and prophets in Jesus Christ. Make us bold in faith and courageous in the face of the enemy, unto the end that we may be more than conquerors through him that loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture is from the first epistle of John, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 8. Our subject, the Athanasian Creed, the one and the many. The Athanasian Creed. A-T-H-A-N-A-S-I-A-N, Athanasian. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. When St. John declared that this is the victory which overcometh the world, even our faith, he was not defining the faith in terms of our personal sense of conviction. Faith in and of itself is meaningless. I can have faith that I am a millionaire. But my faith that I am a millionaire will not make a millionaire out of me, nor will keep my checks from bouncing. When St. John speaks of the faith which overcometh the world, he makes clear that this is the faith in Jesus as the Son of God and in the Trinitarian doctrine. Thus, the very condition of victory is established by John, Trinitarianism. Now, when we speak of Trinitarianism, we cannot escape speaking of the Athanasian Creed. Because the Athanasian Creed defines Trinitarianism in the most scrupulous biblical 
is the definitive statement of Trinitarian doctrine. There are two kinds of creeds. Baptismal creeds and then confessional creeds. Creeds which are tests of orthodoxy. Now a baptismal creed familiar to all of us is the Apostles' Creed. It is required of all in any good church, any true church, as their profession of faith on confirmation and baptism. In this, the elementary doctrines of the faith are set forth. And none can be Christians without declaring their faith therein. The more advanced creeds, such as the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed, are tests of orthodoxy. And therefore, they have a tremendous significance in giving not the elements of the faith, the ABCs, as it were, but the essentials that are necessary for any mature comprehension of the Christian faith. The Athanasian Creed is the great creed in this respect. It bears the name of Athanasius even though it was not written by him. Athanasius was the one who in the controversies with Arianism or the Unitarianism and Humanism of the day made the first great stand at the Council of Nicaea. And so the creed took his name, although actually the creed was written by the followers and associates of St. Augustine and indeed quotes extensively from St. Augustine so that if we give it a single author, we would have to say it is virtually the product of Augustine. Nonetheless, it deserves the name of Athanasius in view of the great stand Athanasius took against a church and an empire that had gone over into Unitarianism and Humanism. When Athanasius made his stand, he suffered for it. The emperor very quickly replaced him as Bishop of Alexandria. And George of Cappadocia was brought in to take his place, and the imperial troops were sent into Alexandria in order to make George the bishop. George tried to commend himself to the Orthodox Christians of the city, not by doctrine, but by persecuting the pagans of the city, by raiding their temples and in other ways abusing them. Unfortunately, when the troops were not on the job, the pagans rose up in rebellion because Christianity was still relatively new in the empire in any position of prominence. And they seized George, tied him to a camel, and dragged him through the streets, paraded him back and forth, and then triumphantly burned both George and the camel. So ended George of Cappadocia, the Arian or Unitarian who took Athanasius' great place. 
There is a curious bit of history with regard to George of Cappadocia. According to Schaff and some other scholars, George went down into history as the patron saint of empires and of states, and he is now known as Saint George. And in the legends that have grown up around this great patron saint of kingdoms and of empires, Saint George slays the dragon, and the dragon is Athanasius. In the original form, the dragon was a wizard, Athanasius, but Athanasius has progressively gone downhill in the legend and George of Cappadocia uphill. When George took over Alexandria, of course, Athanasius was driven into the desert where he spent a number of years. He was persecuted in various ways. He was accused of murdering Arsenius, but Arsenius, instead of being murdered, was in hiding in order to facilitate the framing of Athanasius on murder charges. Athanasius was able to locate Arsenius and to bring him with him into the proceedings, which threw quite a bit of cold water on the hearing. However, they were not through with Athanasius. Among the many other things they tried on him was to accuse him of having raped a virgin. At the hearing, the virgin, who was not a virgin, but a prostitute and who had never seen Athanasius, uh, was told who Athanasius was, that is, Athanasius was pointed out to her across the room so that at the right time she would identify him. Unfortunately, she identified the man next to him who was very definitely not one of those who was to be prosecuted, but was one of the prosecuting party. And that, again, threw cold water on the proceedings but it did not dampen their desire to destroy Athanasius. As a result, it is fitting that the creed bears his name, since he fought so strongly for the Athanasian creed. The creed itself has a checkered history. The Eastern churches did not accept it, and this is significant because liberty declined in the East and found its home in the West. When in the Middle Ages the Western Church began to turn its back on the faith of the Athanasian Creed, it too declined and totalitarianism took over in Europe. With the Reformation, the Athanasian Creed again came into its own. And Luther declared it to be the greatest of all creeds. But since then, of course, it has progressively receded. It is recited once a year in the Lutheran churches. The Church of England has made its use voluntary, and so it has virtually disappeared. The Episcopal Church in this country dropped it entirely from the prayer book, and it has virtually disappeared as far as a living force in any church today is concerned. Let us now turn to the text of the Athanasian Creed itself. And after the reading of it, 
to analyze its significance. The Athanasian Creed. Whosoever will be saved before all things. It is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith except every one do keep whole and undefiled without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreate, the Son uncreate, and the Holy Ghost uncreate. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. As there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensibles, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord, and yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there be three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal. So that in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must think thus of the Trinity. <clears throat> Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe faithfully the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the world, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ, one not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking the manhood into God, one altogether not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person, 
For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended into heaven, he sitteth on the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, at whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies and shall give an account of their own works. And they that have done good shall go into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully and firmly, he cannot be saved. This, then, is the Athanasian Creed, which defines the orthodox doctrine of God, of the Trinity. Three persons absolutely equal, one God. So that when we use the name God, we cannot mean God the Father, but we must mean thereby the Trinity, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, equally God with God the Father. The name of God is therefore applicable to all three persons. And to reserve the name of, the fa of God to the Father only is Arianism and Unitarianism. Now this doctrine is exceedingly important. The biblical doctrine as it is summarized in the philosophical language of the Athanasian Creed is the answer to the basic problem of all history, the problem of the one and the many. Now the problem of the one and the many is not commonly known today because our education has become so derelict that we are no longer aware of those things which constitute the basic problems of life. But the basic problem of all history, whether we look at the Oriental cultures, the European cultures, the North African cultures, the cultures of the Americas as among the Aztecs and the Mayan Indians and the Incas. The basic problem has always been the one and the many. What is this problem? The problem is simply this. Which is more basic, more ultimate in life, in the world, in the universe? The oneness, the unity of things, or the manyness the particularity, the individuality of things. If you answer in favor of the oneness or the unity of things, then you have totalitarianism. And you say the group is everything and the individual is nothing. If you answer in favor of the manyness or particularity or individuality of things and say this is the basic truth of the universe, then you have anarchism. This then is the problem, which is more basic, unity or individuality, the one or the many, the group or the members of the group, the state or the citizens, marriage as an institution or the man and the wife in marriage, the church or the members of the church. 
and throughout history, mankind has moved from totalitarianism to anarchism, from one to the other, and seen no other way. And both answers are destructive of liberty. Today we have on the one hand the Marxists and socialists who say the truth about things is the unity, the oneness of things. Totalitarianism is the answer. On the other hand, you have libertarians and you have beatniks Anarchists who say the individuality of things is the truth, the reality of life. And then you have the tyranny of anarchy, of atomism. And all of history, virtually, apart from certain Christian eras, has veered from totalitarianism to anarchism. And man has always suffered between these two extremes. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity alone gives an answer to this problem. There is no other answer. The doctrine of the Trinity declares that there is one God so that unity is ultimate in God. But at the same time, there are three persons in the Godhead and their threeness is as ultimate as their oneness, so that individuality is equally ultimate with unity in the Godhead, so that we cannot say their unity is more important than their individuality, that the tri-personality of God is less important than its unity. The one and the many are equally important in the Trinity, the oneness and the threeness of God. What does this mean, therefore? It means that all things having been created by God, all things, therefore, are in terms of God and of his nature, so that in all of reality there is an equal importance to the oneness of things and to the individuality of things, to unity and to individuality. So we cannot say it is the state that is more important than the individual or the individual than the state. Both are equally important, equally necessary. We cannot say that marriage is everything as an institution and the man and wife nothing. No. Both the institution and the members of the institution are equally important. It is not the church that is everything and its members nothing, but both alike have an equal importance because there is the equal ultimacy of the one and the many. Now, the implications of this are tremendous. History always before Christ and apart from the Bible, moved unstably, zigzagging back and forth between totalitarianism and anarchism. The history of Greece and the history of Rome, for example, are excellent illustrations of this. But the minute this doctrine 
was firmly established in the minds of believers. It worked for revolution. The Athanasian Creed became the Creed of the West. At this point, the Eastern Church became dark. It never adopted the Athanasian Creed. What happened? The East, which had had up until Chalcedon, theological ascendancy began to decline. It went into tyranny and into bondage. But the West became the area of liberty. When the Western Church began to go into Aristotelianism with scholasticism, reviving the old Greek answers, it too went into totalitarianism and then fell also into anarchism. So that in the century before the Reformation you had Europe torn asunder in a conflict between vicious totalitarian tyrants and anarchists who went for every kind of cultism that we see today. There were nudist groups who believed that there was no law apart from the individual desire, no morality that could bind man because the individual was his own law. And you can find in the old print of great parades of these people in public places in the late Middle Ages, demanding their rights and demanding that the whole of Europe go their way while the tyrants were dragging it their way. With the Reformation, the Athanasian Creed was again given a centrality. In Western Europe, particularly those areas that were Protestant, became the areas of liberty, and this country in particular. But as the Athanasian Creed and the faith that it represents in the infallible Word of God and in the triune God began to recede in these countries, they again fell prey to the twin forces of totalitarianism and anarchism. This has been the foundation, together with the work of the previous councils, of Western liberty. And there can be no liberty without a return to this faith. You can expose communism all you want. You can uncover every fact that is that is in existence concerning the communists and it will do no good because as long as men have only the alternatives of totalitarianism and anarchism what hope has man they have to have the answer the answer which is that of christian liberty the answer of the trinity the equal ultimacy of the one and the many. But neither the group nor the individual is more important, but both have an equal importance. This doctrine is grounded on the Trinity and the Trinity alone. Every heresy that has rent the church has been a form of subordinationism, a tampering with this doctrine of the Trinity. A declaration that 
Christ is not really God and the Holy Spirit is not really God and a destruction of this which is the one true faith. It is no wonder then that the imperial theology then as now has been a humanistic Unitarianism, a destruction of the doctrine of the Trinity in order that the liberty which this doctrine gives might be destroyed. Now the Athanasian Creed has been bitterly attacked by many for its damnatory phrases. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And these critics have said this is ridiculous. For anyone to understand this creed requires that they have the mind of an Augustine. And how many Augustines are there in the church? Are you saying that only Augustine and a handful of theologians and philosophers since who've been able to understand him are going to go to heaven? And the answer to that is by no means. Every humble Christian is called upon to believe this doctrine. They are not expected to understand it. Similarly, they are called upon to believe the word of God. They are not expected always to believe this doctrine. They are not expected to understand it. Similarly, they are called upon to believe the word of God. They are not expected always to understand it. To take, for example, the prophets and the epistles of Paul which gives us a sizable portion of the Bible. They are difficult reading. And there are great perplexities in many passages whose profundity and depth is staggering. We are asked to believe it in order that we might understand it. And we are saved not by our understanding, but by our faith, so that our responsibility is to accept and to receive this doctrine, not to expound it. If the Trinitarianism of the Athanasian Creed and of Scripture is not accepted, the result is another Savior than Jesus Christ. The result is that the problem of the one and the many again haunts mankind. And men are, when they are freed from this doctrine, freed from God into slavery. Without this doctrine, God again becomes the silent God of Arianism of humanism, unable to reveal himself. And this is the God most people want, this silent God. Augustine was honest 
after he became a Christian when he pointed out that one of the things that drew him to a prominent heresy of his day was the fact that it gave him an answer to the problem of sin whereby he was not responsible and he could do as he pleased. And today as men attack the infallibility of Scripture and the Trinitarian doctrine, they are saying in effect that God is a silent God and he has not said to me, Thou shalt not kill, nor commit adultery, nor steal, nor bear false witness, nor covet. Instead, if there is anything that God has said, he has said, well, don't do these things if they're inconvenient, but if you really want to, go ahead, because there is no authoritative God if this doctrine be destroyed. Thus, if we are to maintain the Christian faith, we have to maintain it in its full orb complexity in terms of the Athanasian Creed and the Trinitarian doctrine of Scripture and the Creeds. Thus it is clearly necessary, as the Creed declares, that whosoever will be saved hold to this doctrine. This is the Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully and firmly he cannot be saved. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto thee that thou hast called us to be thy people and hast grounded us upon thy word and thy most holy truth. And we pray, our Father, that we may be more than conquerors in terms of this faith, and that we may move boldly and victoriously, knowing, our God, that we are destined to conquer in Christ's name and to be heirs of all things. Our God, we thank Thee. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now? Yes. It doesn't relate exactly, but um, in the study of the uh, rise and fall of the Roman Empire, uh, Lee is studying now, and I hope I heard someone telling him that Christianity was one of the major factors in the fall of the great, greatest empire that's ever been on earth. Would you please say something about that? Yes. The answer to that is, first of all, this is the wildest kind of uh, slander. It's hardly worth bothering with. Christianity was not responsible for the fall. The Christians represented the most stable, the most uh, conscientious element in the empire. When Constantine recognized Christianity, it was because he realized the empire was committing suicide by persecuting and murdering the people in the empire who were the honest element, the best soldiers, the most stable citizens, the most faithful taxpayers, the most responsible people. And he felt that it was suicidal. 
And so he recognized Christianity, although he himself did not accept <coughs> baptism until he was dying. Now, it proved to be too late in spite of what Constantine did. The second part, as for it being the greatest empire of all history, this is hyperbole, because Byzantium certainly was a much greater empire. It lasted a thousand years, which no other empire has ever lasted, and it was, of course, from its beginning, Christian. Another question? Yes, Tom. Just what does the uh, phrase the Son of Man mean to the Yes, now that phrase is used two ways in uh, Scripture and in theology. In the creeds it is used to mean that he is truly a very man of very man, born of humanity, son of man by his birth of the Virgin Mary. Now, in the Bible, it has another usage also. It has that usage, but it also has the usage in Daniel and in the Gospels of the one from heaven who comes, who is very God and becomes incarnate. So it very clearly refers in Daniel and in the Gospels to the Messiah, to God incarnate. Yes. I was wondering if you could do a, a newsletter on the subject of um, the Christian God versus other people's God. I mean, is it possible so that we can give it to people and use it? No, we're just covering the yes. subject that we don't all worship the same God. Right. That's a good suggestion. I. Uh, Will you repeat that to me in the next couple of days so I won't forget it because I think that's an excellent suggestion and something should be said on that very definitely. In yes. the Lord's Prayer where it says, Thy kingdom come, now, is that thinking of the kingdom coming on earth or the kingdom in the next world or what is your comment on that? The Lord's Prayer makes it specific. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven so that it is very, very wrong to equate the kingdom purely with a heavenly order. The prayer then becomes nonsense, and we don't have to be raptured to get to the kingdom. God's kingdom is to be ushered into this world. Its fullness will be in eternity, but it is definitely and specifically for this world. And it is too bad that so many have uh, so spiritualized the faith at this point. Yes? Uh, is the form of our government not carried after the Trinity and Commonwealth? Or is it just like the uh, judicial, the administrative? And well, yes. No, the concept of the division of powers, of course, derives from the uh, Trinitarian doctrine and 
you have a balancing of the powers of the state as against the powers of the people so that both are to be equal in power. Here you have the equal ultimacy, you see, or importance, because ultimacy belongs to God alone, the equal importance of the group as well as the individuals of the group. So that our uh, form of government was set up to be thoroughly Christian. In fact, they felt so strongly about the Christian aspect that they didn't use the word sovereignty. Not even, uh, well, no state constitution nor the federal constitution used the word sovereignty because sovereignty belonged to God alone, to the Trinity. They're talking about it now, though, I mean... Oh, yes. It was introduced into the state constitutions and it is now introduced into our federal constitutional thinking by Supreme Court decisions. Yes. Um, how did you answer uh, about, uh, as they say, the word Christian or the history of Christian nation is not mentioned in the Constitution or any of the writings, so therefore it is not a Christian nation? Yes. Uh, the answer to that is the there is no reference to Christ or to God in the Constitution because as the First Amendment made it clear, this was a matter of states' rights exclusively. Every state had its own legislation. Every state required certain things of citizens. In every state you had to, for example, believe the Bible was the Word of God and accept the doctrine of the Trinity or you could not vote. For example, in the state of Virginia, and we think of Virginia as perhaps being not as strict as some of the other states, but at the time of the Constitution, the time of uh, the War of Independence, if you denied the doctrine of the Trinity, your children could be taken away from you for their own welfare. Now, you see, they therefore said, since we as separate states have the jurisdiction for the religious life of our state, we don't want the federal government interfering with our religious establishments. So it was the clergy of the United States that demanded the First Amendment. Now, the First Amendment, and someone asked me this recently in a meeting, uh, well, what about the First Amendment and its statement that there must be separation of church and state? The answer is there isn't a single word in the Constitution about the separation of church and state. Not a word. The First Amendment simply says the federal government, Congress, can make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In other words, the federal government is to stay out of the area of religion because this is the jurisdiction of the states and of the counties. So, uh, this is the reason. It was because they did not want a religious establishment or the prohibition of one enforced from above. What the Supreme Court has now done is to say that the states and counties have no right to set up religious requirements of their own. The federal government can prohibit or require as it wishes. 
So tomorrow, the federal government, in terms of what the Supreme Court has done, could require us all to become humanists or Buddhists or what they will because they have usurped this prerogative. Well, they've redefined many words like sovereignty and others uh, to a very great extent. Going back to Martin's question, uh, what about the Russian and um, other areas in Europe today? The Troika. There are many fields, which are the three uh, power things. Is this all stem, uh, whether unconsciously or not, from the Trinitarian talk? I couldn't say. I've never given it any thought. Yes. In referring to uh, the deity, we often use the word God. The old Unitarians, when they referred to God, referred vaguely to the first cause in the universe. Didn't have to be a person or anything. Modern Unitarians, if they refer to God, refer to humanity. They are not talking about the God we are, nor are any other religions. In the remaining time, I want to read something to you because in talking uh, this past week with some of the group, I found that, and this is typical of our world today, most people today are ignorant of what is probably the greatest poem in the English language. It is a rather long poem, but it is a very great poem and a thoroughly Christian poem, The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. Now, how many here do know the poem? Yes. And I know how you knew it. <laughs> when I was a guest at Bob's home, I made sure they came to know it. The Hound of Heaven was written at the end of the last century by Francis Thompson. And Francis Thompson a young Catholic poet wrote this poem which reflects the uh, experience not only of himself but the language and experience of St. Augustine as stated in his Confessions. And what he is here describing is his attempt to escape from God and to have life on his terms. So he portrays himself as running away from God continually, trying to find life in terms of nature, friends, uh, work, and so on. But wherever he goes, he feels he's being chased uh, by the uh, uh, God, and he portrays him as the hound of heaven, as someone who, like a bloodhound, is on his trail and will not give him rest. The hound of heaven. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears I hid from him an under-running laughter. Up-vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated a down titanic glooms of chasmic fears. From those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, 
Majestic instancy they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. I pleaded outlaw wise by many a hearted casement curtained red, trellised with intertwining charities, for though I knew his love who followed, yet was I sore dread lest having him I must have naught beside. But if one little casement parted wide, the gust of his approach would clash it too. Fear wist not to evade as love wist to pursue. Across the margin of the world I fled and troubled the gold gateways of the stars, smiting for shelter on their clanged bars, fretted the dulcet jars and silver chatter the pale ports of the moon. I said to dawn, be sudden, to eve, be soon. With thy young sky blossoms, heat me over from this tremendous lover. Float thy vague veil about me, lest he see. I tempted all his servitors, but to find my own betrayal in their constancy. In faith to him, their fickleness to me, their traitorous trueness, and their loyal deceit. To all swift things for swiftness did I sue, clung to the whistling mane of every wind. But whether they swept smoothly fleet the long savannas of the blue, or whether thunder-driven they clanged his chariot toward a heaven, flashy with flying lightnings round the spurn of their feet, fear wist not to evade as love wist to pursue. Still with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace deliberate speed, majestic instancy came on the following feet in a voice above their feet, not shelters thee who wilt not shelter me. I sought no more, that after which I strayed in face or man or maid, but still within the little children's eyes seems something, something that replies, they at least are for me, surely for me. I turned me to them very wistfully, but just as their young eyes grew sudden fair with dawning answers there, their angel plucked them from me by the hair. Come then, ye other children, natures. Share with me, said I, your delicate fellowship. Let me greet you lift to lift. Let me twine with you caresses, wantoning with our lady mother's vagrant tresses, banqueting with her in her wind-walled palace underneath her azure dais, quaffing as your taintless way is from a chalice loosened weeping out of the day spring. So it was done. I and their delicate fellowship was one. Drew the bolt of nature's secrecies. I knew all the swift importings on the willful face of skies. I knew how the clouds arise, spumant of the wild sea snortings. All that's born or dies, rose and drooped with, made them shapers of my own moods, or wailful or divine. With them joyed and with bereavement, I was heavy with the even when she lit her glimmering tapers. Round the day's dead sanctities, I laughed in the morning's eyes. I triumphed and I saddened with all weather. Heaven and I wept together, and its sweet tears were soft with mortal mind. Against the red throb of its sunset heart, I laid my own to beat and share the mingling feet. But not by that, by that was eased my human smart. In vain my tears were wet on heaven's great cheek. For all we know not what each other says, these things and I, in sound I speak, their sound is but their stir. They speak by silences, nature poor stepdame cannot sleep my draught, 
Let her, if she would own me, drop yon blue bosom veil of sky and show me the breasts of her tenderness. Never did any milk of hers once bless my thirsting mouth. Nigh and nigh draws the chase with unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, and past those noised feet, a voice comes yet more fleet, lo, naught contents thee, who contents not me. Naked I wait thy love's uplifted stroke. My harness piece by piece thou hast hewn from me and smitten me to my knee. I am defenseless utterly. I slept me thinks and woke, and slowly gazing find me stripped in sleep. In the rash lustihood of my young powers I shook the pillaring hours and pulled my life upon me. Grind with smears I stand amid the dust of the wounded years. My mangled youth lies dead beneath the heat. My days have crackled and gone up in smoke, have puffed and burst as sun starts on a stream. Yea, faileth now even dream the dreamer and the lute the lutinist. Even the linked fantasies in whose blossomy twist I swung the earth, a trinket at my wrist are yielding. Cards of all too weak account for earth with heavy griefs so overplussed. Ah, is thy love indeed a weed, albitten amaranthine weed, suffering no flowers except its own to mount? Ah, must designer infinite, ah, must thou char the wood ere thou canst limb with it? My freshness spent its wavering shower in the dust. And now my heart is as a broken fount wherein tear-dripping stagnate, spilt down ever from the dank thoughts that shiver upon the cycle branches of my mind. Such is what is to be the thought so bitter. How shall taste the rhyme? I dimly guess what time in mists confounds. Yet ever on anon a trumpet sounds from the hid battlements of eternity. Those shaken mists of space unsettled and round the half-glimpsed earth slowly wash again. But not ere him who summoneth I first have seen and wound with blooming robes for burial, cypress crowned. His name I know, and what his trumpet saith. Whether man's heart or life it be which yields thee harvest, must thy harvest fields be dumbed with rotten death. Now that long pursuit comes on at hand the fruit, that voice is round me like a bursting sea. And is thy earth so marred, shattered in shard on shard, though all things fly thee, for thou fliest me? Strange, piteous, futile thing, wherefore should any set thee love apart? Seeing none but I make much of naught, he said. And human love needs human meriting. How hast thou merited of all man's clotted clay the dingiest clot? Alas, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me, save only me. All which I took from thee I did but take not for thy harms, but just that thou mightest seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies at last I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. 
by me that footstool. Is my gloom, after all, shade of his hand, outstretched caressingly? Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. Thou dravest love from thee, who dravest me. Now that's the Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson, which is Augustinian to the core. We have time possibly for one more question. Yes? Uh, what about the Nicene Creed? Is that the question to this one here? No, the Nicene Creed, which reflects the work of the Nicene, uh, Constantinopolitan, and uh, Chalcedonian uh, councils, is an expansion of the Apostles' Creed. It's perhaps twice as long as the Apostles' Creed, and not nearly as detailed and as specific as the Athanasian, which concentrates exclusively on one point, the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, one more question. Isn't it terribly hypocritical for people to go to church and say the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and then turn right around and say that it is hypocrisy to use the creed without believing it and of course most of the people today in the churches are hypocrites in so many of the churches the apostles creed is repeated week in and week out and in scarcely any of the churches today is it believed and they shall incur all the greater damnation for their hypocrisy. <coughs> all right, one more. In, in this cycle of Yes. Right now, we are very definitely in the totalitarian swing, but we do have the anarchists pronouncedly with us. The beatniks and some of the libertarians are definitely anarchistic. And their concept is that life can only be lived in terms of a total absence of any law that is above and over man, any state or any institution that has any authority over man. This is very pronounced in some circles. But the tide is moving towards totalitarianism. However, uh, I do believe that the future belongs to us as Christians. Uh, we will have to adjourn now. We'll continue next week with the uh, Council of the Second Council of Constantinople.